One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everyone, and welcome to another great episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Part, of course, of the Agora Podcast Network. Today, we have a fun show for you, but before we do, let's just cover a few housekeeping items. Announcements. They're more like exciting announcements. Exciting like announcements. Housekeep- housekeeping is boring. This is actually cool stuff, so You're right. pay attention. First thing, Flick app. If you haven't yet, do it. We've got a link in the show notes We've got a bunch of people on already. We had a great time talking about Game of Thrones over the last two weeks, and you probably missed it. And just put up a new topic for our uh, for this episode uh, so we can discuss, you know, how you feel about it. And actually, I don't want to discuss your feelings, but what you might want to do about said topic. It's a really good time. Come join us on Flick. Yeah, Flick's, Flick's just an app you can download on your phone if you haven't listened to the last episode and chat with us. And there's a link, as Eric mentioned, to get specifically to our chat rooms on that app. Another exciting announcement, Eric and I will be at the Intelligent Speech Conference in New York City in June on the 29th. If you would like to come see us talk and perhaps even more excitingly, see Mike Duncan talk. That's right. Mike Duncan. What? Rome and the revolution. Mike Duncan. I do mean that Mike Duncan. Yeah, we didn't even get we didn't even get some crappy off brand guy who happened to be named Mike Duncan. (laughs) This is the Mike Duncan. Yeah, Michael Duncan, not to be confused with Mike Duncan. No, the actual Mike Duncan. (laughs) (laughs) So that that's going to be a really exciting event. It's it's on. June 29th in New York City, we have had enough interest that our our, uh, fearless leader, Roy Field of the Agora Podcast Network, has actually upgraded us to a new and improved location with greater capacity because it's going to be a great turnout. Go to intelligentspeechconference.com if you want to buy tickets and use the discount code RECON if you buy, R-E-C-O-N, RECON. Which is pretty dope. You know, it's just reconsider shortened, but it's like... You know, it's like your secret squirrel out in the Delta Forces recon. So this is really exciting because of the bigger venue. This has helped us reduce ticket prices. Remember to use recon. And if you want to tweet about us or not about us, about the conference, it's hashtag Intel speech 19. Also in that recon vein, Intel. See, it's very, very Mm, espionage-esque, but not. There we go. Yeah. So. Uh, We'll see you guys in June. Really looking forward to it. And in the meantime, we'll see you on the Flick app. Finally, Patreon. You know what to do. Patreon.com slash reconsider. Haven't asked for it for a while. Buck a show. But people are still donating, even though we're not asking. So thank you to everyone who does donate. And then if you want to talk to us on social media, besides the Flick app, it's at reconsider pod for both Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's jump in. Let's do it. We're talking today about 
elections. It's May 2019, Xander. And do you know what Matt means? Do you know what time it is? It's, it's time to get ready for the beach. Well, maybe that's true. But no, it's May 2019 and the presidential election is on. Huh? It's only 18 months away, Xander. Only 18 months. We better hustle and get ready. And the race is already so hot. Senators and mayors who have real jobs to do are spending their time instead running around the country at stump speeches, trying to get campaign donations, ignoring the jobs that they were originally elected to do and will continue to ignore for the next 18 months. And so far, 23 separate Democrats have thrown their hat into the ring, which is unbelievably large, even for the good old U.S. of A. That's right, Eric. It smells like democracy up in here, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. The belching smoke of democracy <laughs> pouring forth from your television set. Indeed. The, the Democratic Party, in fact, already has so many candidates for the 2020 presidential election that they've created a new rule in order to qualify for entering the debates. You need 65,000 individual donors now as a Democratic candidate to get your spot on the debates. Some less popular candidates are doing things like playing beer pong on YouTube or doing other silly things in order to try to get those videos to go viral so that they can, you know, increase their name brand, get those donors, and then have a right to participate on that stage. And even the Republicans this year may have their own 18-month primary spooling up. Bill Weld has announced his candidacy to try to take down Donald Trump in the primaries. Governors Larry Hogan and former Governor Bill Weld are allegedly considering the same and and people are hyped up about it. And it turns out that actually taking down your own incumbent president in a primary is tough and unlikely. I think the last time it actually happened was when Taft was being elected in like 1912 and Roosevelt went after him and uh, split the party, I think. Oh, no, sorry. Taft did win. And then Roosevelt went and did the Bull Moose Party and Wilson got elected. So, no, he didn't win that either. So it generally doesn't speaking happen much. However, you know, it's always another shot. But trivia about this is that the last time a serious primary challenger challenged an incumbent president going up for reelection in their own party was 1992. Pat Buchanan came up against George Herbert Walker Bush. Bush won and then lost in the general. 1980, it was Ted Kennedy versus Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter won and then lost in the general. 1976, it was Reagan versus Ford. Ford won that primary and then lost in the general. And then in 1972, Pete McCloskey ran against Richard Nixon. And Nixon beat up on McCloskey pretty early. McCloskey dropped out and then Nixon won in the biggest landslide in the history of elections since George Washington himself. So, you know, there is a trend. And, but those were the, you know, those were the times that such pri- those are all the instances in which such primaries happened for sitting presidents in the elected primary age. So since most states went to elected primaries, those have been all of them. But uh, so, yeah, it's already got eight. We've got to put up with this crap for 18 months. It's bananas. Why? Why, Xander? Well, it's not always been like this, Eric. In fact, Early in the U.S.'s history, Congress members largely chose who the presidential nominees were going to be. This began to change a little bit in the 19th century, sort of mid-century. The horse trading that you always associate with, you know, like Tammany Hall and the dark smoke-filled rooms. Smoke-filled rooms. Exactly. That's the one with fat, bald white dudes. Fat cats. Yeah. 
So all that horse trading at party conventions became to be more prominent and parties had a, a larger role in terms of who got nominated. And now arguably in some ways in other countries, it's kind of still more like this in that party leaders, especially in parliamentary systems, kind of like in the UK, decide by party vote who's going to run as the leader of that party and then who becomes the PM. The US, of course, doesn't have a parliamentary system. And after World War II, primaries, as we know them today, began to take an increasingly important role in the selection process. So a lot of this began to change in 1968, and we'll get to some of the detail here uh, here in a minute. But as of 1976, just to get a sense of sort of how the length of the presidential election cycle has changed over time, Democratic primary debates began in February of the same election year. And so that was already like nine months by then, a nine month campaign cycle, at least. Right. And this began to drift a little bit more by 1984. Debates began in January of the same year. Yep. And then it began to creep and creep and creep. Right. So in in the late 1980s, in, in for the 1988 election, the first Democratic primary debate was held on July 1st, 1987, which was a full 16 months before the election. So, uh, you know, during that transition period after the Second World War, things went from not a primary election to long campaign cycles pretty quickly. And a, a big part of this was that in the 1980s, states began to move their primary dates back further and further to gain more influence in the overall process. Because who could tell them not to, right? We're a federal republic. And, you know, and we'll talk a little bit more about the uh, about the electoral college and all that stuff earlier. But like, Technically, constitutionally, states still decide how they want to do all of this stuff. So it's up to the state. And so they start pushing back their primary dates. And the idea, of course, was that, you know, if a state's voting direction is uncertain, which is most common early, then a candidate needs to devote more time and resources to that state and perhaps pander to what that state wants in order to get their attention and and win their vote so they can create momentum early on. And for the states that vote later, the candidate, you know, can potentially do the math and know that it's not worth their time to go to that state or really care about that state. You know, presumably the last states in the primary have, you know, the the candidates just don't visit them all that often because usually things are pretty wrapped up by then. Although this can backfire sometimes, of course, if we think of the 2008 Democratic primary when Obama made a big comeback later on. So why was this allowed to happen? You know, what I alluded to about the states not really having any central direction constitutionally is a big part of it. And and what Professor Shire of Carlton College argues is that ultimately, since no one's in charge, there's no central rules to direct when things start. Uh, things just want to start earlier and earlier. So in an interview from NPR, he said, uh, we have a federal system with 50 different state authorities and 50 different state parties. And they have different incentives about how to proceed in the presidential delegate selection. And then Sanders, the host, replies, so in other countries, government is in charge of the whole thing. Sometimes they'll even put laws in place to limit how long elections and campaigns can be. For us, not so much. But even with that, campaigns haven't always been this long. Some say a big shift started because of a man named Jimmy Carter and his early success in a little state called Iowa. Exactly. So a lot of it, uh, a lot of why the U.S. election cycle is so long has to do with sort of this this lack of focus. So while the Constitution says the president needs to be elected by the Electoral College, what the Electoral co- College looks like in the process that 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 
states nominate by kind of vary state by state. So like I mentioned, and like Eric mentioned, by the time we get to 1976, we begin to see a, a, a change, sort of a shift towards primary elections being more dominant in the U.S. And a lot of the shift began eight years earlier in 1968. And in that time, only about 16 states used primary elections. And the idea with primaries sort of in this mixed-use system in which there were primaries, but also parties still retained a large amount of control in terms of who got nominated, was that there were at least some popular elections that could check the desires of party leaders. And the idea being it's at least a little bit more democratic that way. Now, as one example of sort of this democratic-ish process providing a check to party leaders was in 1960 when JFK won the West Virginia primary. And that was sort of an indication to the rest of the country that people were actually ready to vote for a Catholic president because there was a lot of concerns that he just wouldn't be popular enough. So this sort of mixed system of party leaders and primaries began to shift when after the 1968 nomination process, the Democratic Party chose Hubert Humphrey, who was kind of seen as the establishment candidate. He supported the continuation of the Vietnam War, which clearly by that point, a lot of people were heavily opposed to. And interestingly, Humphrey had not won any of the primaries that did exist at the time. And so people became frustrated and felt that they didn't have enough influence and say in terms of who the candidates were actually going to be. So this commission called the McGovern-Fraser Commission was set up by the Democratic Party in 1968. And the idea was to, well, ultimately create sort of a system that would appease people who were frustrated by the process. And this led to more open primaries. However, this was not, the system was not designed, or the commission rather, was not designed to set up a system that would be completely and utterly inclusive because party leaders still wanted to retain some degree of control in terms of who got nominated. So today, for example, if you look at how the Democratic Party elects its candidates in the primary process, there are these things called superdelegates, which still make up about a little under 15% of all of the delegates in the Democratic Party. And superdelegates get to decide who they vote for on their own, whereas other delegates need to vote based on the outcome of the primary election in certain states. Now, if you'll recall the 2016 election, superdelegates became, a, I would say, mildly contentious issue when <laughs> – is that, is, is, that, is that exacting enough, Eric? Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lot, a lot of superdelegates in the Democratic primaries ended up voting for Hillary Clinton, who was clearly largely considered to be the establishment candidate compared to Bernie Sanders. Sanders lost, of course, the primaries, and then Clinton went on to lose Trump. Some argue, especially in retrospect, that the superdelegates' establishment tendency is kind of undemocratic and actually ended up hurting the Democrats' chance of winning the general election in 2016. I, I, you know, I object to that narrative a little bit, in part because the facts don't seem to back it up. So at, at no point other than Iowa, but, but basically for none of the, you know, none of the period of the entire election process was Hillary Clinton behind in the actual number of votes cast for her by Democratic voters, right? She's just always ahead. And, you know, Sanders never caught up. So one, the delegates count, you know, their actual votes didn't sway the, you know, had, had they not existed, the number of votes would have still gotten Clinton. 
And then there's this whole mumbo jumbo about momentum that, oh, the superdelegates voted for Hillary, so her vote count looked higher. And so people voted for her because she had momentum. And I think the argument for for in this case, them even having much of an influence is difficult, very difficult to support and requires a bit of mental gymnastics. Yeah. And then, of course, always there's the issue of hindsight, hindsight and not really hindsight. It's more like who's who's proposing the narrative, right? Because a lot of the times if you get this narrative floating around out there that's being proposed by people that are frustrated with a certain outcome, then, I mean, clearly it might not be as objective or striving towards an objective read as might possibly exist. And that's, and yeah. I was going to say, and some people who are frustrated with the superdelegates influence in the Democratic election might have been pleased if there were superdelegates voting for a more established candidate, establishment candidate in the Republican primary election. And that would have been great that time because it worked out the way that they wanted and all this junk. Yeah, I, I think it's a very brief tangent, Some something that ends up happening a lot in certainly in the U.S. I, it happens elsewhere, too, but I'm just more familiar with the U.S. electoral process is you will get people challenging rules and processes that exist and saying, oh, they're undemocratic or we don't want X, Y, or Z because they're frustrated or dislike a particular outcome that occurred as a result of them without necessarily thinking through the consequences long-term of how that can come back to hurt their own parties or own positions, chances in the future, or how maybe it just weakens checks or, or whatever generally, right? That happens all the time. Anyways, by so shocking, shocking, I know, right? So this whole process towards more primary elections began in 68. And by 1976, there were over 30 states using primaries with a majority of delegates by that point being selected in those primary elections. So this process is a big part of what caused the United States primary system to extend. We'll summarize a little bit of how it went later. So what could you do to take advantage of this long cycle? Well, presumably with a very long cycle, there'd be a lot of time for media or other kind of non-governmental groups to do deep dives into candidate signature policies, uh, interview experts, run analyses, and generally understand, is this policy a, a good idea or a dumb one? Nonpartisan think tanks would have an opportunity to publish a bunch of papers about um, impacts and costs of everything proposed. And you, as a, as a voter, would be able to read those nonpartisan think tanks reports, which I'm sure everyone here has done, about their favorite candidate to understand them better. And to some extent, this does happen. So, And you know, when policies are proposed... If there's anything specific enough to be analyzed, there are think tanks that do deep dives on this. So I remember, you know, reading reading some reports on Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan and, and what would it really look like and do his claims make sense? But unfortunately, most people, of course, don't read these. And and it's those are certainly not brought out by the media, right? The, the media doesn't sit, spend its time going like, all right, well, we're going to have someone from Cato and someone from Brookings sit down and talk about the last four months of research they did on healthcare policy, right? That's not what happens. Courteously so and respecting yeah, one another's opinions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so much of the campaigning falls on like unsubstantiated promises that can't really be checked or even if they are, nobody cares or like vague promises that there's no analysis possible and we don't really know how it's going to turn out until they come to power and attempt to implement their changes. 
Right. So, of course, this this process of actual policy analysis doesn't usually happen. And instead, the way that election cycles are covered focuses on individuals' personality traits or ticks, you know, what they say and how they make people feel about an idea rather than how realistic it is or how likely it is that that sort of policy can actually be implemented or paid for where the money's going to come from. And <laughs> every or Howard Dean and his rebel yell. Yeah, yeah exactly. Ah, that was a great moment. Right. Uh, well, it was I mean, that was 15 years ago and we were just little tykes back then. And or was that was that 2000 or 2004? Four. OK, yeah, we weren't. We were li- still. Yeah. All right. We weren't little tykes, but we were teenagers back then. I'm like, that's what I remember of Howard Dean. Right. Yeah, I don't remember his policies this many years later. And that's yeah. the thing that sunk his campaign was making a sound right. at it. And he was excited yeah. at a campaign rally. Like, I've never spoken to hundreds of thousands of people, but I imagine you would get excited by it. Right. Presumably. Or like that John Kerry, when he was campaigning in Pennsylvania, ordered the wrong kind of cheese for his Philadelphia cheesesteak. Ooh. Like a vault. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow that makes a person less presidential. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and e- even even the space that does exist in the way that these sorts of things are usually covered is really quite limited, right? If you imagine, you know, a reporter trying to get detail out of a presidential candidate about their policy and actually lock that president down into saying something specific, usually it happens like this. It's a press conference, so the reporter's question is rushed. He's yelling at the top of his lungs trying to get heard over all the other reporters yelling another question. They have 15 seconds tops to ask the question and phrase it in a way that's as gotcha as possible so that whatever the president's uh, presidential candidate says, you know, they can run it on their news site and it'll sell well and it'll seem controversial. But of course, like the candidate doesn't have to answer in a way that locks themselves down. So they usually don't. Right. The candidate either just ignores it or, you know, says something to the extent of like, oh, I'm not going to tie myself down to specifics right now without further research. It's contingent about a lot of things. Or they just say one thing and then say something else the next week. Like there's the space for actually asking those specifics isn't really there because the institutional incentives for covering a candidate's campaign that way aren't really there. The only people in the world I know that are better than candidates at using a lot of words to say nothing are sports players after a game. <laughs> I guess you do watch sports, but you know, I've, I've been watching the Bruins a lot recently and they'll go to like Patrice Bergeron and they'll go, what really changed for you in the third period? And he goes, Oh, you know, at the, at intermission, you know, we got back to the, to the locker room and coach gave a really inspired speech. And, you know, we got out there and just, you know, we really had our legs under us and, and, you know, all four lines were really producing and, and everyone put their heart into it as much as possible. And, um, and what would you say is the, the key factor that helped you in this game? Well, you know, at the end of the day, we just put more pucks in the net than the other team. Thanks so much, Patrice. <laughs> Back to you, Bill. Right. And you're like, nothing was said. And, you know, and politicians are great at this, too. They're all trained at it. This is like this is explicitly trained. And and it's actually part of, you know, I, th- I think all this is actually part of the amount of money that is put into these campaigns is that. Look, they hire consultants and they hire experts now that tell them exactly what to say and not say. And like, interestingly, our current president seems to have like entirely bucked that trend, right? Where he was like, no, I'm just going to say what I want to say. Wasn't very good at getting specific. 
but like for the general candidate, most of the time they're saying kind of what they're told to say and what they're told to say is nothing because of those incentives, because of the risk of a gotcha moment. And it may be the case that our current president reasoned that, well, if I have so many that people can't keep track of them anymore, it won't matter. But that fee- that the way that these elections are covered means that you know there is a disincentive to get into specific policy details, and there's a strong incentive to treat the the election like a sporting event. Like this whole idea, the entire concept of momentum. When you think about momentum in an election, is absurd, and you shouldn't. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This shouldn't be a way that we are electing people. But during this very, very long campaign campaign cycle, you need to get momentum and keep momentum. Because if you go search Wikipedia for polling results of various presidential primaries, you'll see momentum does crash. You know, someone will be hanging out at 40% for a while and they'll be the runaway candidate and then boop, they're gone. So I do think some of the same incentives and from changes in how political media works that that are driving political polarization, as we talk about in my book Wedged, are also driving a long campaign cycle that what's happening is, is candidates want to get an emotionally resonant message out there as early as possible to create as many diehard fans as possible among the small diehard portions of their parties that actually vote in these things. And, you know, media have an incentive to whether they get you or not cover this like a sporting event because sporting events are exciting and people like to watch them and root for their, their team. And those work together actually fairly nicely, even though they're sometimes combative because, you know, media wants you to tune in and the presidential candidate wants you to tune in about them. And the more emotionally hyped up you are about something, the more you'll do it and you'll get tired of it. But guess what? You'll keep coming back. Exactly. Now, this this extended process isn't quite as prominent, isn't nearly as prominent in midterm elections, which is when, you know, not the president is elected, but members of Congress and other local elections. Now, and some of this is just because 
people care less about midterms generally, even though they super shouldn't, because a lot of the times the things that you're voting on in midterms are far, far more likely to impact you directly. There are fewer intermediary steps, such as between things that the president does that actually reaches you and things that your local council member or maybe state proposition does that will, in fact, uh, in fact impact your life day to day. Great example is there are people probably all over the country, but certainly in Alabama that have very strong opinions one way or the other about the recent abortion bill. And like, guess what? Your state legislator is the person who cast a vote on that. And if you can't like you're sitting sitting here, listen, just take a second and, and think, do you know who your state legislators are? Right. You probably have two two chambers. Do you know who both those people are? And did you vote for them? Because guess what? They're the people who vote at that level and make those kinds of changes. Yeah. So very few people vote in midterms and even fewer people vote in like primaries for congressional spots in the midterms where, where that exists. And for House uh, re- House representatives in particular, uh, oftentimes you only get like a few thousand people making the difference between who wins and who loses. So in these cases, there's only so much campaigning that you can do or that you need to do. You're not going to raise the level of awareness that exists on the national stage. You're not going to have all of these big, massive media agencies with national and international reach covering it. You might get local papers like now, the LA Times isn't the best example because it's a massive local paper, but like the Sacramento Bee, for example, is one that I come across a lot that covers state issues. So there's only so much that can be done to try to increase an awareness about a candidate or a proposition and only so much funding that can be raised in the process as well. It's also the case that each congressional primary vote happens just on one day rather than spread out over the course of several months, like with, a, with presidential primaries. So you go in early, spend some money, and then people are probably going to forget. And so you save some of your ammunition, some of your dry powder for later. You know, and, and so we also wonder, why does this not happen at all in other countries? And Xander alluded to this a bit earlier that, for example, in a parliamentary system, a prime minister is chosen by the elected members of parliament of that party, right? So Theresa May, right, like the conservatives have, a, they don't have a majority anymore, whoops, but when they did have a majority, they, the Tories, right, they, they chose Theresa May. And there was probably a big fight in the closed room and some open debate, but um, May bubbled up and, and that's who's the head of, uh, head of government. Queen is head of state and doesn't really do much. So, so some, of, some of it is that in most of the other big old countries, there aren't elected primaries, right? So even those MPs that got elected in the United Kingdom – there were no primaries for them. The parties picked who's going to be our rep for the state or sorry, for the district. And then you get to pick among the, you know, three ish. There are more. But but in like if you're in England, most of the time, it's three. Of course, if if you're in Scotland and and Northern Ireland, there tend to be some more local groups that that get there, like the Scottish National Party or Ulster Union Party, stuff like that. But, you know, there's like three or four possibilities that are handed to you by the party and you vote for them. And guess what? The campaign starts when the parties announce who's running. And so there's none of this long primary cycle. There is just, you know, the election starts. Ta-da! And in particular for these parliamentary systems, the election tends to be called at a snap, right? Or a bit of a snap. So they have to call an election with the part. The prime minister must call an election within five years but tends to call the election when they think it's favorable or necessary for them. 
And so they say, great, election in six weeks, go. So there's no opportunity to have these long primaries. So this is the case in, you know, not just the UK, but Australia, Canada, Israel, India, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In Germany, the chancellor is just elected by parliament. So you elect parliament and then the parliament says, all right, who's going to be our chancellor? Angela Merkel. Done. Right. So there's no campaign for the chancellor, for the head of government of Germany. In Russia and China, it's all a sham anyway. So why have a, you know, why have a campaign? And so there's there's actually very few systems like the United States. And even for the MPs, all those campaigns are happening just in each district. So even though there's a national flavor to it, it's a lot more like the midterms in the United States, where you're electing, you know, one person in a in a little group. So and the U.S., of course, uh, as you mentioned, used to be like that. It used to be the case that for your Congress people, for president, the party is just picked who was going to be the candidate, and you got to vote on that person. And it got changed because, you know, Xander mentioned Tammany Hall, smoke-filled rooms. There was a sense that this was too corrupt, uh, that unelected elites who were in charge of the parties had too much power over who got elected, and that's arguably true. But then we changed to, great, let's just have everyone vote for vote for who will be the candidates with no meaningful kickoff date. And lo and behold, there are there were unintended consequences. Yeah, imagine if instead there was like a day on which parties announced who the candidates are going to be, and then that's it, you're off to the races. That would be the day that the campaign cycle starts. But when nobody really announces a candidate and the candidates just have to announce themselves, then in order to you know drum up support to just be, become official candidates at some point, then there's no reason it wouldn't keep creeping back and becoming longer and longer and longer. It's also the case that in most parliamentary systems, the prime minister chooses the date of the election uh, within a certain window. So in the UK, it's five years, for example. So there's no predictable cycle quite in the same way. The PM calls for an election. It's six weeks weeks out and the race is on. And that's there's just a firm starting day and that's how it works. So what's really fascinating about the U.S. system was that this presidential election cycle that now has like kind of a two phase unregulated democratic voting system was never designed to be democratic at all. So that's the crazy part. So and technically it officially still isn't. So the Constitution of the United States states that the president is elected by the Electoral College. If you are familiar with the site 538, that is the number of electors that are in the Electoral College and There's been a lot of debate about the Electoral College since 2016 and since 2000. So you probably are somewhat familiar with this. But the electors from each state that go to the Electoral College are actually appointed however those states want. And so originally it was designed to be a bit more like that of the EU. And that has never changed on paper. So it's supposed to be a states appoint some folks and those folks get together and they're supposed to go talk about who they want to be president. And then kind of like electing the Pope, they're going to do it over and over again until the white smoke comes out and you've got a president. Um, and that, and it actually has never happened that way. We did a podcast episode on this already. We'll link to it. So uh, I won't get too deep into it. But what happened was uh, very early on, the parties just got control of it. And it was, you know, whichever party kind of had power in that state, that party's presidential, you know, favored presidential candidate would get their votes. And then when they changed it to an elected system rather than a totally corrupt system. It just happened to be that the state's electors for the electoral college 
were picked by whoever got the plurality, you know, whatever party's candidate got the electoral plurality of the vote. They do not. Well, actually, in some states, you can be penalized by law if you don't vote the way that the state outcome told you to. In 2016, there were some faithless electors. But generally speaking, with all the structures in place say that, you know, look, whoever just gets the plurality of of the popular vote in this state gets gets all or most of the electors and deal with it. And so it's this just weird. It's this very weird system that doesn't operate as intended at all. That interestingly was not meant to be democratic really much at all. And uh, now it's now besides the fact that there's this strange translation of popular vote to electoral votes, it's super democratic because there's no there's no non-popular electoral part of it. It's just not a perfect translation of it. So weird stuff. Now, that doesn't mean that the Constitution can't be changed, of course, and that a more direct voting system that many people advocate for couldn't be implemented. However, also, of course, changing the Constitution is extremely difficult, and this is on purpose. But such drifts towards more direct voting systems have occurred in the U.S. in the past, perhaps the most obvious being the 17th Amendment of the Constitution, which mandated popular elections of U.S. Senators. Before this amendment, which was passed in 1912, state legislatures would elect the two U.S. Senators that would sit in D.C. for their state. Now, in the American ethos, and I'm going to make a couple of generalizations here and just, you know, recognize that their generalizations are not speaking about every single purpose, uh, person, but the idea that more democracy is more better certainly exists out there. It isn't an idea shared by everyone, but it is ubiquitous, and this makes some sense given given that you know the founding myths that Americans grow up with about our country being this beacon of freedom. And I'm not saying this is true, of course, but that's the idea that's out there. You know, it was formed in distinction and differentiation, and purposefully apart from the other systems of government that existed in Europe in the 18th century. And sort of another one of these founding myths that gets attached to that is this idea of founder worship. Oh, the founding fathers said X, and therefore it is the incontrovertible truth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it has its own pitfalls. But one thing that the founders of the U.S. were likely far more familiar with than the average American today, even the average American political junkie today, are the classics. You know, that is the, the history of antiquity. And this is just something that educated people grew up with at that time in history. So the success and failure of different forms of representative governments that existed before constitutional monarchies began to come to power in Europe, sort of in the, in the early modern period in the 16th and 17th century, is just something that all of American founders were intimately familiar with and were intuitively referencing when they set the rules of play up in the U.S., and, well, and explicitly referencing, to be clear. So the two most obvious ones are Athens, which was a direct democracy. You would literally get thousands of white voting males together to cast their vote. And that was the decision made by the government. And, and that decision could have been like anything. Like, yeah. for example, all right, we don't like this guy. Have a vote. Do we exile him? No. Do we kill him? Yes. Great. 51% of you said death. It's death. It's that direct. Death. Or cake, cake, or death. 
Death. I mean cake. I, I mean cake. Ah, you said death. You said ah. Yeah. So anyway, Athens failed in in large part, and I say fail meaning they fell from power in the fifth century BC, as at the point was an Athenian empire, to basically losing its sort of regional position as a power and falling ultimately to Mastodon a hundred years later. So Athens failed in large part because it was too democratic and because it got vote locked and, and swayed by demagogues. And we have a whole show on this that we'll link to in the notes. The other clear example is the Roman Republic, which failed for different reasons. One of the big ones being it was too easy to change the rules by which everyone played. They didn't really have a written constitution like the U.S. did. They had traditions that everyone just kind of followed because it was the thing to do until people stopped following them. And if you haven't read Mike Duncan's book, The Storm Before the Storm, he gets into great detail about it there, and it's a really good read. As far as Athens and Ancient Greece goes, I'm going to give a shout-out to Lantern Jack, and he is the host of the Ancient Greece declassified podcast. It's a great show. We've interviewed him on Reconsidering. We've been on his show. He's also an extremely funny dude with a great sense of style. When you met him, he was wearing this suit. Oh my God, suit. that suit. Oh yeah. So if you want to learn more. Only Lantern Jack could have gotten away with that suit. So and fly. he did get away with it. So fly. Yeah, he is so fly. That's a good word for him. I, I might even What's say up, he's, he's lit. Get it? Oh. I'm here oh. all day. I, I'm not cool enough to use use these these slang terms that the kids these days are using. All right, let's put our let's put these these listeners out of their misery, dude. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, if you want to learn more about Athens and ancient Greece and the problems that their democracy ran into, do check out the show. You'll learn some more about it. Point is, it's worth reflecting on how these sorts of systems, whether more direct or less direct, have performed in the past, uh, rather than just kind of assuming that more democratic, meaning more direct ele- elections, is definitively better. Of course, you also need to define what better even means. But it's also difficult to use historical analogs because 2,000 years ago was a lot different than today. So clearly, we don't have an answer one way or another because that's not what we do. But that's the food for thought that we're going to leave you with today. Righto. So 18 months ago, buckle down, you know, where I will share, where I will share my, my strong opinion on this noting that it's how I feel, is paying too much attention right now doesn't really help you or the country. You got plenty of time. You can do, you know, spend your time doing the research rather than clicking every link and looking at every tweet about who said what. There's there's plenty of work that you can do to help your democracy and getting all wrapped up in it right now is, you know, emotionally is probably not it. That is my opinion. I, I will be spending my time getting riled up about sports, which has no impact on the world, which is great. And I will try to do what I encourage you to do, which is to not let the pundits do the thinking for you and instead pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. This is Xander signing off. We'll see you next time. And we'll see you in New York. We'll see you in New York on June 29th Intelligence Speech Conference. Woo! Woo! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.